Welcome to Solder Smoke, a podcast about wireless technology. We talk about everything from old-time crystal radios to modern digital satellites. We form a global brotherhood bound together by a common desire to understand, repair, design, and build our own electronic equipment, and by a willingness to help each other in our efforts to master radio technology. All are welcome. Now, please join us in the solder smoke. All right, guys. 15 May 2011, Sunday morning. And this is solder smoke number 134. Okay. I'd like to start out by telling everybody that solder smoke is proudly sponsored by Sierra Radio Systems. They'll be at Dayton. They'll be at booth 406. Check them out, www.hamstack.com. I say again, www.hamstack.com. All right, talking to you guys on a new microphone. You might have you might have seen pictures of it. I think I had a picture up on the blog. It's the same old microphone that you guys like, but I'm really proud of an innovation that I've introduced. It's now got a uh, a microphone stand. It's uh, <laughs> it. I don't know, it's got that roadkill feel to it. It's it's an old IKEA lamp that we had in Italy. I tried to modify the lamp for um, US size light bulbs and plugs and all that and it just didn't work out. The thing was about to go to the to the garbage and I said, No, no, wait, this could become the new solder smoke microphone stand. So there it is. I think it's um it's a, it's it's sort of in keeping with the um, with the uh, kind of the ethos of the show, the roadkill kind of element that we have here at the Solder Smoke Podcast. There's um, no duct tape yet, but there's some masking tape. Uh, I wasn't quite ready to commit to it, so I didn't use <laughs> duct tape. I just used masking tape. But it's got the, um, you know, it's got the little plastic uh, uh, bathtub drain that actually holds the microphone. And it's got a uh, popper filter, the P popper filter, over the front of that um, little piece of plastic. And that popper thing comes from uh, from baby wipes. And uh, I don't know, it all seems to go together pretty well. It's got a little um, kind of filter uh, choke. The cord is wound around a, um, a toroid. And hopefully that's keeping the um, all the sounds that we've had <laughs> featured in the program in recent weeks out of the audio input. Um, I think I've gotten rid of the AC hum, and I think I've gotten rid of the big 103 um, ZZ Top background music. <laughs> Let me know. Hopefully the only thing you guys will be hearing in the background this morning are some birds that are chirping in the backyard. I got the window open. It's kind of a cool, rainy morning here in Northern Virginia. Got the window open. Temperature's very Agreeable. The HT37 and Drake 2B have not yet heated up the room, and um, but so you might hear some birds chirping in the background there. Um, all kinds of developments to report this week, and uh, I like to start out by yesterday. I got in touch with um, and met with some guys from one of my old radio clubs here when we were back in Virginia ten years ago, just around the time that we were getting ready to leave during our last year here. A new uh, QRP organization, and I use the word organization loosely here, um, it cropped up. It's called Nova QRP. I think it was uh, inspired by NorCal. You know, NorCal has that great uh, that great idea. Um, no meetings, no um, no uh, organizational charts, nothing like that. Just a bunch of guys hanging around and and having fun. Anyway, <clears throat> anyway, we were out there and went went to the uh, the restaurant where these guys get together once a month or so. Um, met a met a great bunch of fellows. Omar KW7OS, Kurt uh, N4LRR, met K4JSI and Mark WA4KFZ. We talked about uh, QRP and home brewing. Very nice. Uh, good to be back in touch with with the Nova QRP group. Um, been doing a lot of work on on whisper and computers and uh, the Asus EPC, all kinds of stuff. You know, I, I I've been you know to the dismay of some of you, I've been working a lot on this uh, whisper direct conversion um, DC receiver transceiver for 30 meters that I built in 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 Italy. It was my last uh, 
project, my last Roman project, and it it never really was finished. It was sitting here on a um, uh, just on the um, on the big PC board that I built it on, and it wasn't in a cabinet. Um, it was all kind of I don't know a little bit too dead bug in its totality. <laughs> it looked like one big dead bug sitting there. So I decided to get to get finished with it. And there was a number of things that needed to be done. I needed to work out the uh, the computer control so that the uh, the software so that the Whisper software could automatically switch back between transmit and receive. Until now, I've been forced to do it manually with a little switch, and or leave the rig either all the time in transmit or all the time in receive, and that sort of defeats one of the main features of, of Whisper, which is that you switch back and forth and, and uh, you know, spend uh, several minutes or several por- a portion of each hour in the transmit mode, and then the rest of the time you're in receive, and the, um, the software automatically ups- uploads your, um, your received signal reports up to uh, the Internet. It's, it's all really, really neat. So I... I started to think about how I was going to do this, and I don't have a whole lot of experience with um, computer control and and serial ports and things like that. So I at first thought the easy way out would be just to do it via a Vox circuit. I'd put a little Vox circuit in there. And when the audio from the the sound card uh, on transmit came in to the transmit audio input port, that it would trigger the Vox relay, and I would go into um, into Vox, and that would be it. And I thought that would be simple, and, and wouldn't you know it, I had in my junk box a little Ramsey kit um, Vox circuit. So I thought, wow, I'll just put together the little Ramsey kit, pop that in there, make some adjustments, and, and I'll be transmitting and receiving and switching over, and uh, more and more of the operation will be turned over to the computer. <laughs> I will become even more redundant here in the uh, in the ham shack, ham shack. But uh, you know, I put it together, and it just I just couldn't get the thing to work. I don't know what was wrong. Uh, I had a lot of trouble with it. It got all frustrating and stuff. Now, and I'm sure it's not a Ramsey problem. I'm sure it's an N2 CQR problem here. So I'm not saying anything bad about Ramsey. I love their little kits. But anyway, I got tired tired of it, and I got frustrated trying to make it work. And then I started figuring, well, it'd probably be easier just to use the um, the uh, the serial port and the signal, the RTS signal coming from the serial port. So I chopped up a serial port cable, and I had, I had the all the little wires coming out on the uh, on the uh, on one side of it. I figured out which one of them had the um, the RTS signal on transmit. I built up a little um, 2N2222 um, kind of relay driver. Uh, transistors so that when the signal came in it would it would cause a relay to fire over and and man it was very satisfying I all of a sudden the computer was uh, turning me turning the rig over from transmit to receive just like it should and uh, and, and a lot of fun so that was one uh, one one victory there the other thing I, fi- I I determined was that I was getting not getting quite as much power out as I should and uh, I was I was really really uh, QR PP here a little bit too much and it started making me wonder what I could do to to boost that a little bit so this was great fun because I got to pull out my W7ZOI um, power meter that um, the, 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 the meter that Mike uh, KL7R and I had built together many years ago and it was sitting right there ready to go and it allowed me to accurately measure the uh, the, the power out from the uh, three RF amplifier stages that I have in this rig that was quite helpful, and uh, I felt virtuous. I felt that I was moving closer to the uh, <laughs> to the the intended method in experimental methods in RF design. I was actually measuring things. Wow! Um, so I was, I was glad to use that meter. I also got to use LT Spice and um, um, and a program that comes with EMRFD that I use all the time uh, called FBA Feedback Amps. Um, Wes and the other authors of uh, EMRFD have a software package that comes with the book. And one of the most useful programs there is um, a little program called FBA. And I really like that one. And it stands for Feedback Amps. And what it does is it lets you play around with um, different values for the, uh, the shunt and the degenerative feedback resistors. And it lets you see how much additional gain you'll have, what the effect will be on... Um, input impedance and things like that so 
I quickly determined that if I wanted to get another 3 dB or so out of the, uh, the first RF amplifier stage, that if I took that uh, resistor in the emitter circuit and dropped it from 10 ohms to about 5 ohms, that would do the trick. And man, the soldering iron was fired up. I went in there and changed the value of the resistor. And as they say in Italy, eccolo. That was it. And so now I'm, I could, that, uh, the, the final power amplifier in this rig, which, by the way, comes from a soft rock uh, kit that Tony Park sent me, um, goes up, can, can, can produce the full one watt output if, um, if, uh, if driven properly. Now, I'm not sure how much um, out, out I'm, I'm getting now because I've made some other changes to the circuit, but, uh, but so far so good. And obviously, I'm having a lot of fun working you know, with this thing. I, um, I determined that I don't really need on transmit the, um, the AF amplifier that I built into this rig. I mean, um, on, the, on the DC receive side, the AF amplifier comes from the um, receiver designed by um, Roger KA7EXM uh, for the Ugly Weekender. There was a great project called the Ugly Weekender in which they built a... Um, a very simple DC receiver, simple but elegant, and I really like the discrete component uh, IC-free um, uh, AF amplifier that they have in that thing. So I built it and I put it in there, and I had been using that AF amplifier both on receive and transmit, and the um, and switching around the inputs and the outputs was a bit a bit awkward. And then as I, as I was working with this rig and measuring things, it, I I figured out that I have more than enough audio coming out of the sound card on the laptop. So there was no real need to run the uh, the uh, audio coming in through uh, through the AF amplifier before bringing it to the um, the little balanced modulator that I have on the transmit side. So now the uh, audio goes direct from the uh, the sound card direct to the two diode balanced modulator and onto the RF amps. There you go. Um, here, um, this this is something I think you guys will find interesting. I, it it has occurred to me that this rig will be useful far beyond whisper and might actually take me into a more um, human involved mode <laughs> Wes I think it was Wes who sent me a uh, an email kind of um, you know kind of uh, kind of teasing me a bit for for moving into this kind of dehumanized form of, of ham radio he said so let me get this straight your computer talks to some other guy's computer and uh, uh, at what point do do they does the computer tell you if you've had fun or not? <laughs> and I, you know, and I I take the point. Is it, it, there is something to be said for actual human involvement in in ham radio contact? So, I but but I see the potential for human involvement in this little rig because on thirty meters the um, the frequencies for uh, for PSK thirty one are very close to the whisper frequencies. And I think what I'm going to be able to do is use this rig for PSK31 contacts. I have, I have a little problem with it now. I'm receiving PSK31 signals. I haven't made a contact with it yet. But I notice that when I switch from receive to transmit, as I'm watching the, um, the, the frequency on my, um, on my counter, uh, I shift by about 40 hertz or 100 hertz. Now, in, in, in the normal world of CW, uh, that wouldn't be a big deal. It would be hardly noticeable. But in PSK31, I think it would be a, a problem. And I've poked around inside the rig a little bit, and I've determined that what's causing the frequency shift is that the, um, the regulation, the voltage regulation on the, uh, the crystal oscillator is not quite as stiff as it should be. So I'm going to go in there. Right now, all I have is... Uh, a Zener diode, uh, a 9.1 volt Zener diode, doing the regulation on the oscillator, and I notice that when I go from transmit to receive, the uh, the voltage to the oscillator shifts by uh, several tenths of a volt, and that 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 might be enough to be moving the frequency. Um, I don't think it's a matter of the load changing on the um, uh, on the oscillator. I think I don't think that's it. I think it's it's more a matter of the voltage shift. So uh, anyway, that's what I'm going to do. I'm also going to do some more shielding on the um, on the little um, the variable crystal oscillator that I have in there. I've when I when I when I built this thing, I I left space around the oscillator so I could cover it all up with the uh, the bottom half of an Altoids tin 
So that'll be uh, the, um, the, the shield for this thing. I think that'll work out really nice. Hey, and in the course of doing this thing, um, working on, on this, um, oh, yeah, wait, but first, so I think I'll be able to use this for PSK31, and I'll use the um, FL Digi uh, software to, to make some PSK31 contacts, but I, can, I think I can also use it for, uh, for just CW, because FL, FL Digi does CW also, and I think it would be a real hoot to do some keyboard uh, CW with this thing, so we're gonna we're gonna squeeze a lot of modes out of this old um, last Roman rig, and I'll keep you guys posted on it. Um, I wanted to, you know I've re, I've revived my the old Asus EPC. This is the little uh, web notebook that we picked up for Billy um, four or five years ago in in Rome. It's an Italian version of the Asus EPC. The keyboard is is Italian, <laughs> which is kind of fun. Um, but I, I never really had much luck with it, with the, um, with the software that came with it. We got the, uh, it's, the, we, we got the Linux version and, uh, I think that might've been a mistake at the time, uh, because the, the Linux that version that came with it, frankly, wasn't all that good or all that user friendly, but I've been hearing a lot about, um, about the, um, about this, this program called easy peasy, which is, um, a real British phrase. If something is really easy, they say easy peasy. It's sort of a bit of Cockney rhyming slang, I think. But um, anyway, I, I downloaded easy peasy and and put it into this uh, Asus EPC. And man, it was easy, easy peasy. And it works really well. well it's, a, it's a nice program. If you have one of these little web notebooks kicking around and you're looking to, to, to revitalize it and get it going, um, I, uh, I, I recommend it. I think it's, uh, I think it's a, it's a nice program. So I would, uh, I would, I would give it a shot. And so now I'm, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of matching up the easy peasy with the, um, with the last Roman rig here. And, uh, one of my problems is that the, the, um, the Asus EPC doesn't have a serial port, but I'm thinking that I could use one of the USB ports. Cause the only thing I really need is the, um, the, the RTS signal for um, for transmit receive switchover, and um, I went and, and somebody said, well, just use a um, um, a, a USB to serial converter. I, and I went down to Radio Shack and they wanted about thirty five bucks <laughs> for one of these things. And I said, I'm not going to pay thirty five dollars for a cable. Um, so tell me, guys, I, I think if I just chop open a uh, if I take a USB cable and just cut it. I imagine I'll have a bunch of wires there, and I'll be able to find the one that has the uh, the RTS signal, and voila, I will have a uh, in effect a USB to serial or a USB to uh, phono jack <laughs> converter. Uh, tell me if I'm wrong here, uh, but uh, that's that, that's sort of the plan. All right, let's see. Still on the subject of beacons, beacon mania here. This one's kind of different. I've been telling you about my. Uh, Beacon for the International Space Station. Here we move into outer space, <laughs> I, and it's it's going just fine. I have it sitting there, and it, it's percolating away. It's using the old uh, Toshiba lap laptop, uh, Tosh Toshiba Satellite Pro laptop, appropriately named, that uh, Kevin uh, ZL3KE helped me uh, get going again. Now I've got a new package of software. Well, old new or new old software. It's um, a satellite, it's a program called UIView, and I used this many years ago in the Azores when I was playing similar games with, with the uh, Mir Space Station and, uh, and, uh, and PCSAT. Um, it's a really neat, basically an APRS program, the Automatic Packet Reporting System by uh, Bob Bruniga, WA4 APR. Brilliant guy out there at the, uh, at the Naval Academy. But anyway, um, this is an, an automatic packet reporting system program, and I'm using it with um, the uh, my little Radio Shack handy talkie receiver. Got the uh, got the transceiver uh, set up on one four five point eight two five, and it sends out a little burst of packet every minute or so, announcing my call sign, um, my location, and uh, and that's about it. And uh, if that 
International Space Station is overhead, then uh, voila, the, uh, the space station's digipeter sends my signals back down to Earth. They make it into a uh, internet gateway station and my little symbol, which I have chosen to be a, uh, a smokestack, <laughs> appears on the, on the maps for anybody who's watching the uh, station herd sign. The station's herd uh, page on, um, uh, on the internet, stations heard from the ISS, or it also shows up on the various um, packet uh, automatic uh, packet reporting system, APRS, uh, kind of locator pages. So it's kind of cool to see my location there with the, the smokestack. Some guys have written in and said that the smokestack actually looks like a smoking soldering iron. Either way is okay with me. But um, uh, I really like um, UIView, the UIView software, because it's got a feature where it, um, it gives voice announcements of any APRS signals that it's, um, that it's receiving. So I have it here in the corner of the shack, and uh, the only time it says anything is when the space station is overhead and transmitting um, packets. So I'll be kind of working on something in the shack, and all of a sudden I'll hear this very British voice come in and say, you know, N4RTW mobile. <laughs> and uh, and that's been a, that, that'll be a, uh, a, a signal that has made its way up to the uh, to the space station and back down, received by my little handy talkie, decoded by by UI view, and announced to me in a very British voice from this uh, British software. So uh, it's um, it's sort of a, a space station detector, <laughs> and uh, and a lot of fun. Um, let's see, um, I've been and I've received some messages because you know you have um, there's a messaging capability in. Uh, APRS and guys have been sending me uh, messages. I got a message from uh, KB1GVR Mark, who uh, has been in the uh, in the the satellite game for a long time and was one of the stations that I communicated with via satellite when I was out in the Azores from 2000 to 2003. Good to get messages uh, from him. Hey, um, I had announced that um, we were um, there was the Yuri. Gagarin anniversary. There was a Yuri Gagarin anniversary event, the 50th anniversary of Gagarin's um, first human spaceflight, and uh, they were supposed to have the. Uh, they were supposed to fire up inside the space station uh, the Aris One satellite, and they were going to make some uh, some special transmissions. I I tuned in. I knew the satellite was overhead, and uh, nothing heard here at N2CQR. I felt kind of bad about it, but uh, got emails from a number of guys saying that. Uh, Nobody heard anything. There was some sort of um, technical problem up there, and uh, so the uh, the Yuri Day uh, transmissions from the space station were a no go. So if you didn't hear anything, well, you're not you're not alone. Uh, these things happen. It's a it's a harsh environment when you're in the space game. Let's see what else we got here. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for a word from our sponsors. All right, you know. Um, We've been talking to you a lot about uh, Sierra Radio Systems and uh, their new Hamstack microcontroller project platform. Um, George uh, KJ6VU and uh, John KJ6K have done a great job putting together a package that I think will be of real interest and use to to radio amateurs. They're going to show it to the world at the Dayton Hamvention coming up next week. Dayton Hamvention. They're going to be at Dayton at booth 406. Be sure you stop by and, and see them and tell them you, you heard about them on Solder Smoke. You know, sponsors always like that when they, when they hear stuff like that. Uh, so uh, go by and see them. But I got a nice message from George and uh, uh, a few things he wanted to update uh, listeners about. Uh, it says, one of our newest projects, one of our newest products is the Project Board Kit, and it's now available. It is a board that the Hamstack CPU will plug into. One of the open source examples that we are developing for it is a CW keyer. It supports iambic mode A and B, has an LCD display showing speed, and a menu of options such as weight, side tone frequency, left-right hand configuration, etc. The keyer uses a digital rotary encoder for the keyer speed and menu navigation. 
The project board has a, either an opto-isolator or a high-voltage solid-state switch to key the transmitter so it should work well with solid-state or tube rigs. As an open-source project, you can modify the code to make your own customized keyer. You know, I could use this. I, I was talking to the guys at Nova QRP just yesterday, and a number of us said that in spite of the fact that we've been in ham radio for many years, uh, many of us are still using straight keys. Time to get with it, and it's a good way to combine projects here. Get get uh, get going with a with a um, with an iambic keyer, and and do it in a little bit. Do it do it with a bit of home brew and and new technology. I think that's a great application. George goes on. Uh, we also just received the PCBs for another project board. This one has eight relays, eight amp single pole double throw. Uh, four digital inputs and four analog inputs. Again, the Hamstack CPU board uh, plugs on top of this general purpose I.O. board. The board has several ha- has a serial interface that supports either RS-232 or RS-485, so you can network multiple boards on a single PC, USB, or serial port. Ideal for remotely controlled base stations, remote control of relay-controlled coax switches, etc. This is, this is one where I see real applications here in my shack because for example I have all these beacons running and I'm trying to run them with just one antenna and you know I want to control a number of things at the same time and I'd like a sequence of events so that you know I I move through several different kinds of beacons as as we go through the day and um, I think this is a real excellent application for it so I'm starting you know I I promised George that I would give this a, a go it's just that I've been kind of sidetracked with other projects here it's been a kind of a busy time we've had some uh some visitors in the house and so uh the social calendar is filled up a bit but uh, i this morning i cracked open the um the the beautiful manual that uh that george and john have put together for the hamstack controller and i've actually started work on my board um with the installation of the ic sockets on uh, on the hamstack board here so i um it's 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 really nice to work with the manual. It's it's a it's jo- it's a joy. It's almost Heathkit Heathkit like, and it's uh, in its clear explanations. And uh, I'm really looking forward to getting going on this thing and bringing myself one step further, one step closer, one big step closer to the modern age. Here, I've got a long way to go, guys, and I'm I'm sure the Hamstack project's going to help me along. So, again, they'll be at at, at Dayton. At, at booth 406 check them out and the website is www.hamstack.com check it out i think you'll really like this project and please when you're at date and stop by booth 406 take a look at the project products or just say hello to george and john and tell them that you, you heard about them right here on uh, the good old solder smoke podcast all right let's see radio history you know um um, I've been getting back into boat anchors here. Now, this is a real switch in technology, but we're, we're switching gears and we're going back to the 1950s. <laughs> that's, I think that's, that is one of the real fun parts of the hobby, the, uh, our ability to, to switch back and forth between different kinds of technologies. But, uh, you know, I've been telling you, I've been lately, I've been getting back into the boat anchors in a, uh, a big boost to my, uh, enthusiasm for the old radios came when uh, when john k2za and his wife uh, drove down from from new jersey to give me the uh their john's dad's beloved uh, dx100 i have it sitting here and i'm 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 getting to work on it I've, I've done some work on it and i'm getting it ready to get on the air and i look forward to to announcing my presence as a uh, fully plate modulated am transmitter uh, here in the next few weeks, but I'm I'm going slow because this rig is uh, is such a such an was such an important uh, piece of gear for for John's dad, and it's so important to me. I don't want to I don't want to blow anything up by making any hasty moves. So I'm going to bring it up on the variac very slowly. Make sure everything is uh, is is okay. Make sure nothing got jostled out of place during the drive down from New Jersey. So um, anyway, that's. Uh, that's coming, and I'll let you guys know uh, when I get the uh, the DX100 on the air. But thanks again to John for that magnificent rig. I think about what a what a wonderful gift that was every time I walk into the shack and see it there. Um, I learned something. 
from, uh, I think, yeah, it was from Mark from KB1GVR up there in, in Maine. And uh, apparently uh, some of the work that he does has to do with, uh, with boats there on the co- coast of Maine, boats and ships. And Mark told me that uh, uh, um, he remembered my call all these years because um, CQR is a kind of boat anchor. <laughs> I never knew. <laughs> this must have been fate. Um, but I, I Googled it. And sure enough, uh, CQR is a, a very popular kind of, of boat anchor used by, um, I, I guess, by a lot of sports fishermen and things. It's, it's not that big, but it looks like it would adequately anchor a, a, a small boat. So there you go, another connection between uh, my call sign and the world of boat anchors. Um, I've got my HT thir- HT37 and, uh, and Drake 2B. On 75 meters, I, I, I did some work on the little, well, the not little, but the uh, 120 foot or so long wire antenna, and I got the antenna tuner, and I got a better ground. So now the thing loads up uh, very well on 75 meters. I've made a few contacts there. Um, you know, I, I must say I like 40 meters better. 40 is a bit more uh, kind of open. 75, uh, it's got a kind of a, and it's it's well known. It's been this way for a long time. You kind of feel like you you need reservations. <laughs> Whereas 40 is much more uh, freewheeling, but I want to I, I, I want to have a good antenna for 75 because I have a couple of projects in mind. Uh, one is I want to get the um, I want to get on 75 meter AM with the DX100, so the antenna is uh, is getting close to is cl- the antenna is ready to go. I also you know when I was in Rome, one of the other bit rigs that I built was this thing called the ET1. I don't know if you guys remember this one. The ET1 was the uh, is the little uh, transceiver using nothing more than an uh, than an MPF 102 FET one active device one little FET kind of built on the top of a relay and when you switch the relay it the, the entire FET is switched over between a, a little uh, on transmit it's, it becomes a little QRPP oscillator and on receive it becomes uh, a regenerative detector so uh one of the simplest transceivers that you can build. I built it. It uses a, a color burst crystal at 3.579 megahertz. But uh, when I was in Rome, I never had a decent antenna to on 75 to, to use it. So all this um, QRPP talk, Bert out there at the University of Virginia has got me inspired by all this talk about the Michigan Mighty Might. And so um, what I want to do is get this uh, ET1 going see if I can make at least one phone call, phone, not phone call, <laughs> one, one contact with it. And uh, it would be really great if it was with the, uh, the, uh, the guys out there at the University of Virginia at Charlottesville in the nuclear bunker radio club headquarters, perhaps with a Michigan Mighty Might on the other end. That might be too much to ask for. But uh, anyway, that's why I'm moving into, um, into 75 meters. Guys, I want to share with you here something. I'm going to have to hit, I'm going to hit the pause button, stand by. All right, I found it. Good stuff here. I mean, I hope you guys aren't getting tired of me here talking about the Drake 2B, but, well, heck. <laughs> I love talking about the Drake 2B. Um, our, uh, our correspondent in Dayton, who will soon be hard at work at the, uh, at the Dayton Hamvention and 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 four days in May, uh, Bob W8SX has um, gone out, and as as part of his uh, duties and responsibilities as a solder smoke correspondent, has found somebody, one of the engineers who worked on the Drake 2B for Drake out there in Miamisburg, Ohio, and it, and has done a very nice interview with him, which I'll I'll share with you in a moment, but. Around the time that I got this, uh, the email about the interview from from Bob, I um, was uh, perusing an old copy of Electric Radio magazine, Electric Radio, celebrating a bygone era. I was reading from number 51, July 1993. Um, my, my copy here was uh, originally purchased by Dan Radcliffe, uh, KF9BP, out there in Sussex, Wisconsin. Um but there's an article in this uh, edition entitled appropriately the Drake 2B receiver um and it's by Peter Doherty 
W1UO from Raleigh, North Carolina. And I just want to read for you, for you the first few uh, paragraphs of this article. I really enjoyed it. And I think it captures a, a bit of the, the magic of the Drake 2B. There is a haunting sound from my novice days I'll never forget. After just joining my first radio club, I had gone to visit one of the older members. It was late afternoon, sunspots were hot, and 15 meters was jumping. He tuned around the CW band, wading through a sea of signals which my novice ears just couldn't unjumble. He stopped tuning and flipped the bandwidth switch on his receiver to 500 cycles. The barrage of signals was now reduced to just a few. He then rotated the passband tuning control until one signal seemed to stand out amongst the rest. Then the magic. He flipped the position on the Q multiplier to the peak position. He turned the Q balance until the speaker just about broke into oscillation. Then he rotated the peaking control. Suddenly, this weak signal that had been buried under all the others popped into the foreground with an eerie sound. Rare DX. Worked him. Then another and another. I was hooked. I had to have one of these receivers. But the year was 1969, and where was a 15-year-old going to find all the money necessary to buy this great receiver? Well, years have passed, and the price of a used model hasn't changed much. But now I've got a little more money. That is what's great about electric radios. We can all afford them now. So when I was at Dayton two years ago, I finally bought my first dream receiver, the Drake 2B. <laughs> all right, Peter. Thanks a lot. Yeah, that's it. That's the magic. Now, uh, the interview that, uh, that our friend Bob W8SX uh, recently carried out. Um, and... You know, the, the original idea was that he was going to interview uh, the engineer. Uh, Bill Frost was actually the service manager for R.L. Drake for many years. Uh, he didn't want to re be recorded, so, so Bob just uh, went, went to him with some, some questions and, and got his answers. And uh, if anybody wants any additional information after this, uh, please let me know, and I'll pass it on to Bob, and Bob may have a chance to talk to Bill again. Um, let's see... Um, Let's see, I'll try to come up with some questions, but I think it would be great to know uh, a bit about the design decisions. The Drake 2B was designed and built in the early 60s, but was not continued because the R4 was its replacement. It was hoped that the, that the Drake 2C would be a replacement for the 2B, but the companion CW transmitter T 2NT caused hams to associate the 2C with a novice station, and the sales numbers show that it was not as popular because the 2B, but it was not as popular as the 2B with non-novice hams. That's interesting. Why the 2C never really took off? Uh, because it was associated with the 2NT and was thought of as a novice rig. One of the questions that Bob and I had discussed was why no crystal filters? The answer is crystal filters were not considered because of cost in terms of design and parts. In addition, the LC filters in the Drake 2B allowed the designers to provide passband tuning both easily and cheaply in the 2B. And uh, as we saw from the, uh, from the W1UO article to, to good effect. Um, question that we, we asked, uh, how did the Drake 2B stack up against other receivers of the era? The answer, the 2B was better than anything else for sale except the Collins receivers which cost a great deal more. There was also the R390, which was available on the surplus market, but it frequently was not in good shape and, again, cost a lot more. Um, here's a question. Who designed the Drake 2B? The Drake 2B was designed by several engineers, but principally it was both Milton Sullivan and Bob Drake who designed the receiver. A question. Why the copper chassis? Uh, it says here, the, and, and the answer was that Bill was not sure on this point other than to say that uh, the copper was meant to keep corrosion of, alu of an aluminum chassis components uh, to a minimum. Later, they used cadmium in the uh, R4C-T4XC combination. 
In a couple of instances, the chassis was plated with chromium, and these radios are very rare and expensive collector's items. Wow, chrome-plated, a chrome-plated Drake receiver. Yeah. Question, how important was the 2BQ multiplier? The answer, well, this is a highly sought-after item today. Not very many were sold with the 2B or even the 2C. Today, these are very valuable and command prices well above their original list price. You know, on this one, I'm not quite sure. Um, I'm, I'm not quite sure whether, um, whether, whether Bill Frost has got that right. And here's why. Every time I see a Drake 2B, I almost always see it these days with the 2BQ multiplier. I'd have to check the the eBay situation, but I, I think that they're they might not be as rare as uh, as Bill recalls. I mean, I have one, and uh, I, I I seem to find or see pictures of two Bs with the two BQ more often than not. So um, anyway, there um, we'll we'll have to look into that a little bit. Here's a question that came from me: um, Was dial parallax a problem considered in the design? And the answer, you know, dial parallax is one of the one of the few shortcomings of the Drake 2B, and it's just the way they have the uh, the dial and the dial needle set up that if you move your head a little bit when you're trying to read the frequency, you can get a five or even a 10 kc frequency shift. So you have to make sure you're looking at it from the right angle when you're trying to figure out what frequency you're on. Um, was dial parallax a problem considered in the design? Not really, as the crystal calibrator was supposed to be used along with the lines on the main dial slide to indicate the exact frequency. Band-to-band variation was very good for the time at around 3 kilohertz. Not bad for uh, for a pre-DDS VFO. Indeed, yeah. Question, does he still have a Drake 2B? Yes, and he would not part with it for any amount of money. We know the feeling. How many were made, he said. He's not sure about this, but he did say the receivers are numbered consecutively so that by knowing the first 2B and the first 2C, it's, it's, a, it's a simple subtraction to find the numbers for each manufactured. So uh, I guess somebody out there, some Drake aficionado, will probably have that information. Was the Drake 2B a big seller for Drake? Yes, but the R4 line, uh, which had a longer run, the R4 line had a much longer run and therefore sold more. The TR3 and the TR4 line was a big seller for many years until the Japanese cut into their market share. Uh, question, let's see. The TR7A was Drake's last piece of ham gear, and now they manufacture only home and commercial satellite receivers. These sell well to commercial cable, dish network, lodge net, uh, channel modulators, DA converters. They are now located in Franklin, Ohio. No ham gear is made at Drake these days, as it is all commercial receivers for satellite TV radio markets. The R8 was their last ham receiver, and it still sells well in the used markets. Um, Let's see. Bob and uh, and Bill point out, for replacement tubes, look at http www.tubesandmore.com. Uh, the, the transmitting tubes, 6JB6s, are particularly hard to find. Look for a substitute sweep tube that can be used in that circuit. Um, John M. Cherry, uh, John Covelli, WB4HFN, and, and, and Evan Rolek, K9SQG, host the Drake Forum every, ham, every Dayton Hambenshin. It's a good, source of, a good source for repair for Drake rigs is uh, John Kreiner, WB4HFN. Um, Drake websites include www.n9bor.us slash drake.htm and httphome.online.no slash sindorp. To preserve the parts on a Drake 2B, especially the cosmetic parts, keep it out of the sun and don't smoke. (laughs) Good advice all around. These parts are particularly hard to find these days. Hey, I think I have a couple of parts here from a Drake 2A receiver. I have like the tuning dial and the reduction drive on a 2A. So if anybody needs them, needs needs some of those, let me know. But anyway, thanks very much to Bill Frost and to and to to Bob W8SX for that trip down memory memory lane and hopefully a, a contribution to Ham Radio to the recording of Ham Radio history here on the Solder Smoke Podcast. Uh, interesting stuff. Oh man, something else. I gotta 
see if I can find this one. I'm going to hit the pause button again. All right, I found it. Didn't think I would find it. I was getting kind of desperate there. You know, we've got some organizational shortcomings here at the N2CQR Shack. You guys know how it is. But I found it. And it's in the November 1999 issue of Electric Radio, Electric Radio number 127. Got a nice picture of uh, Mitsugo Shikagi, JA6IBX, with his uh, military equipment on the front cover. But the, uh, the subject I wanted to talk to you about, because it's in keeping with our, our boat anchors theme, is um, a column written by the famous Lou McCoy, W1ICP, noted uh, QST author, technician, genius, engineer, guy who uh, designed the uh, Mate for the Mighty Midget uh, 6U8 um, tube-type superheterodyne receiver that I built a number of years ago. Really enjoyed all of Lou's writing. But he wrote a, a series of columns for Electric Radio called Looking Back, in which he um, recounted uh, tales from his time at AWRL and early days in ham radio. Really great stuff. But I came across this one, and it was um, it was really amazing. I, I you know I, I actually had to check to make sure it wasn't an April issue, <laughs> because you know how dangerous the April 1st issues can be. And this one did sort of, for, for, for a time, seem almost almost hard to take, but hard to, hard to believe, but it's, but it's, it's, it's for real. Um, let's see. Let me get to see the right part here. Um, let's see. Da, 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 da. Um, I ended my column last month telling you about my trip to Hollywood and meeting some movie stars, particularly Ava Gabor. About a year later, I received an invitation to an engagement party in New York City at Ava's apartment. My wife, Martha, never did believe my story about Ava, so I asked her if she would like to go to an engagement party in New York. When I told her whom it was for, she gave me a strange look and then agreed. Keep in mind that this is about ham radio. I would never have met these people if it had not been for ham radio. In any case, we went to New York and finally reached Ava's apartment. I rang the bell, and Ava herself answered the door. And this is your beautiful wife, Martha, she said, and immediately embraced and kissed her. Martha nearly fainted. Um, anyway, uh, so naturally, the party was filled with famous people, but one in particular I met and became a good friend with was, and wait for this, Ernest Hemingway. We really hit it off, and he agreed to read a short story that I had written, which I later sent to him. About a year later, the League had their national convention in Chicago at the Palmer House. We had a large contingent from ARRL headquarters that attended, including our general manager, Bud Long, W1BUD. It so happened that Duke Ellington and his band, band at the Blue Note, a drinking spot across the street from our hotel. I had gone to school with Johnny Hodges, who played sax with Ellington's band. Holy cow. Lou McCoy had some some very eclectic, wide-ranging, and interesting connections. In any case, that Thursday evening, I slipped across the street to the Blue Note and grabbed a seat at the bar to listen to the band. The seat next to me was vacant, and a guy that looked rather scruffy, that's the best word I can think of, took the open seat next to me. He looked familiar, but it didn't register at first. He looked at me for a second and said, I met you at New York a year ago at Ava Gabor's party. You're Lou McCoy. I realized it was Hemingway, and we started drinking as if a year or so hadn't even passed. By the way, he said, I read that story of yours. It wasn't very good. And then he laughed. I asked him if he was a jazz hound, and he said that he had always admired Ellington. Anyway, it goes on. And 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 Lou uh, apparently hit it off with... Uh, Ernest Hemingway, and uh, they continued, uh, and they stayed in touch. Who knew? <laughs> Good fun. Anyway, I thought that was thought that was interesting. And Ernest Hemingway and uh, and Lou McCoy. I, who would have thunk? There you go. Um, let's see what else. Um, uh, just some odds and ends. You know, I, I put some information on Don Norgard and the SSB Junior. I think I had his name wrong. Uh, but uh, some other, this, this also came from Electric Radio, 
we had that um, had some more information about Don and and uh, his contribution to the early days of SSB. I put that up on the um, on the Solder Smoke uh, blog. Also, uh, Aid Weiss and uh, what I call QR poetry. Um, I think it was uh, Mike Rainey who came up with this. Yeah, it was Michael AA1TJ who found uh, an old uh, article by uh, by Aid. Um, uh, and uh, and put it up, and it was really I really liked it, so I repeated it on my blog. I just heard that Aid has come out with a new book, and this is this was really exciting because his his previous books, especially the Joy of QRP and the History of QRP in the United States, were such important contributions to the ham radio literature. And I just this week heard on QRPL that he's coming out with the, that he's come out with another book. This one on uh, on propagation. So uh, check, I mean, check out QRPL for more information on that. But uh, that is certainly a, an important development in the world of um, of ham radio literature. Um, still on boat anchors, you know, I'm, I'm, I want, I want to, I have, <laughs> I have this regen project, the British regen, and I put it literally on the back bench. But I want to get into it. But I need to. Uh, I need to overcome some shortcomings in my understanding of regen theory. I remember as a teenage ham, this was one of the things that really had me scratch in my head. How is it that this this signal could be running around and going through the amplifier multiple times? Wouldn't it get all jumbled up with the other signals that are coming in for the first time? And how did how does how does the regen principle all really work? Well, I, I found uh, I think I found a good clear explanation. And this is often the case. I found it in an old, um, very old ham radio book. This one from the uh, the military, and uh, and there's a there's a very kind of sensible, uh, kind of clear description of how uh, regeneration uh, increases the uh, the Q of the uh, of the circuit and results in vastly increased amplification and overcomes this kind of <laughs> traffic jam signal problem that it caused me so much uh, kind of consternation as a as a teenage ham. I'm going to dig deeper into that, and uh, hopefully in the next episode I'll be able to, to describe the, uh, the understanding that comes from this, this old, old document. Let's see what else we got here. All right. All right. Billy, bang the gong. Solder smoke mailbag. Ooh, that's awesome. Yeah, solder smoke melt bag. I got to catch up on a lot of things here. Again, this organization has, seems to have struck. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's springtime here. But I lost track with a bunch of mail. And, and one I want to start out with, some guy sent me, and I, I apologize because I don't have the call sign here, but you'll know who you're talking about. And it, it may be better that you stay, that you remain anonymous. So I'll just identify you as some guy who sent me an email. <laughs> and he, he noted that... Uh, he is seen in the culture, in the in the popular culture, additional uses for our beloved Altoids tins, and apparently in in I don't know if it was in the Sopranos or in some other uh, mob mafia related uh, television program or movies, one of our beloved tins was used to um, deliver the finger of a kidnap victim. You. Yuck. Um, anyway, uh, enough of that, and uh, hopefully uh, the Altoids tins will <laughs> will, not, will not gain popularity among the uh, the kidnapping in the kidnapping industry. Uh, but somebody did note that, that that the Altoids showed up in that in that application. I uh, I think we're putting them to much much better use here, guys. Just want to say thanks to the guy who uh, who designed the solder smoke logo. I ran into him many months ago at the uh, Vienna Wireless uh, Hamfest, and I wanted to make note of his call. It's N3UMW, and uh, he showed up at my my table there at the Hamfest, and I wish I had more time to talk to him, but we didn't get a chance to talk. But thanks again, old man, for the uh, for the nice logo work. N3UMW, thanks a lot. Thanks also to our friend out in California from the Netherlands, Roger Roger. PA1ZZ now has a California call, but I always think of him as PA1ZZ because that's where his roots are. 
and it's such a cool call, PA1ZZ. But Roger is out there in uh, in California, up in the uh, in the Bay Area, and he's been a an enormous help to to us as we went through the process of buying a uh, a new computer. He's got a lot of expertise in this area, and he really really helped us out. All kinds of great advice, and uh, and real real friendship. Smiles across the wires, indeed. Thanks for everything, Roger. Thanks thanks again. Thanks also to uh, to Bob W8SX. I just shared with you the uh, the uh, the article on um, on on Drake 2B history. Very very interesting. Uh, Bob has also sent in an article on the uh, escapades, technical escapades around April 1st. I'm going to try to get this up on the blog. Thanks for that, Bob, and and thanks in advance for being our correspondent at Dayton. And I'm sure you're going to pick up some good info, and we'll have that probably on the next uh, the next episode. I uh, got a nice email, and I couldn't find it this morning, so I can't provide details, from an old friend, Phil, out there in VK6 land. We used to talk on Echolink. We had lots and lots of uh, hobby interests in common, and I was delighted to run into him, get an email from him. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig up that email, Phil, and I'm sorry if I haven't gotten back to you, but, uh, but thanks, for the, uh, thanks for sending us the message, and uh, we'll, we'll get back in touch with you soon. Got a got a nice email from uh, N3FJZ, and he he sent links to a TV show that he, he used to watch as a kid, and it's now available on YouTube, The Secret Life of Machines. Certainly something that sounds like it'd be of interest to uh, to our community, as we said. And uh, N3FJZ, uh, Rick Rick points out that uh, in in uh, in homage to uh, the uh, the solder smoke podcast and the entire kind of homebrewing QRP solder melting world, he has chosen and included in his email address the numbers sixty forty. <laughs> Steve Smith, take note. Uh, sixty forty. Yeah, very good. Thanks for that, Rick. Hey, I want to give another uh, heartfelt thanks to. Uh, him and 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 his wife uh, Gina and Art Belourdes. Uh Gina has a, a wonderful uh, business where she uh, she makes handmade and homemade uh, jewelry and really really nice stuff. And uh, uh, Gina and Art were very very kind to send uh, a sample of their jewelry. This sample with with a Morse code theme, and it arrived and I. I'd barely taken it out of the box when Maria and and our daughter Elisa, I mean Elisa and our daughter Maria, started uh, kind of not arguing but saying, "Oh, I like it. No, oh, I like it more than you do." <laughs> Elisa's managed to hold on to it, but Maria has her eye on it, and that's uh, just an indication of how how nice and, and beautiful the, the jewelry is. So uh, I think you could find out more about this. The uh, Gina's website is Lizzie B. Vintage. I'll spell it L-I-Z-Z-Y-B Vintage, all one word, dot com. LizzieBVintage.com. And they they didn't want me to do a plug, but uh, I, I thought I would. And uh, it was just, just real nice of them to, to send that along. So... Thanks, Art, and thanks, Gina. Much appreciated, and uh, Elisa's going to send you an email. Got a nice package by a, by a very roundabout way. You know, one of the big advantages of, of running a podcast like this is that nice people send you stuff. <laughs> In addition to the jewelry, uh, an envelope arrived via a very roundabout way. I think, it, I think this package, well, obviously this package got its start in New Zealand. It may have... Um, gone I know it went by way of Tokyo and then it went from Tokyo to London and then London back to me here in Virginia and what it is it's a stack of ham radio magazines the New Zealand uh, amateur radio magazine called break-in I've been hearing about break-in for many years but I've never had a copy of break-in in my hands and our friend uh, Jonathan KC7FYS, who for uh, for many years was our uh, our man in Tokyo, there at the uh, the big big um, 
ham radio. I always mispronounce it, so I'm not even going to try. Ikebara? How's that? How's that? The uh, the big uh, kind of radio row center there in Tokyo. Uh, Jonathan San was there for, for many years. He's now back in the USA, and he was kind enough to send me a stack, 10 or 15 copies of Break-In. Guys, I want to tell you, this is one magnificent ham radio magazine. Really enjoy it. The technical level is just perfect, not too deep, not too shallow, um, and all kinds of great information there and a reminder of what a, a real center of ham radio excellence uh, New Zealand is. Really, really enjoy it. Great articles, all kinds of good ideas, and uh, it's a shame that it's it's so far away that we can't get better access to it. I was just thinking this thing's a real treasure, and I encourage the guys down there who put it together to find a way to to make it accessible for those of us here on the other side of the planet. Also made me think about New Zealand and the role that New Zealand played in ham radio history, especially DX history. I mean, for me, I always talk about my first real big DX was a 15-meter contact using that Drake 2B receiver with a station ZL2ACP in Waipawa, New Zealand. Man, I couldn't believe it. I ran up the stairs, woke up my parents, told them I'd talk to New Zealand. <laughs> uh, you know, I, not long ago, I was reading the ARRL book, uh, 200 Meters and Down, the history book by Clinton DeSoto about the early days of ham radio. And when he st- starts talking about uh, transoceanic tests, the, um, the, uh, of course, the, the transatlantic was the big first step, but then, then going trans-Pacific was a big one, even a bigger step. And that came not long afterwards, not long after the uh, the Atlantic crossing. And there were a bunch of ham radio operators in New Zealand, a place called Gisborne. And Gisborne is featured in the uh, in the um, in the DX column of Break In magazine. And I, I, this really uh, attracted my attention because when I was reading 200 meters and down, I noticed that there was a guy, one of the one of the pioneers of of DX. In, in New Zealand uh, is a fellow who has the same family name that I do. He, he had O'Mara, and my name is Mara, but the same spelling, M-E-A-R-A, and I think it was Ivan O'Mara. What a great name. Ivan O'Mara was down there in Gisborne, New Zealand in the early days. Must have been in the 20s, and he was one of the pioneers in Trans-Pacific DX. So I started thinking of this as I I read through uh, break-in. Got a big pile of break-in. It's now there are actually multiple piles of break-in all around the house. <laughs> In every every spare moment, I, I I find myself reading it. It's uh, now I'm I'm carrying copies of break-in on the uh, the train, and uh, I hope uh, my fellow train travelers don't think it's uh, it has anything to do with breaking into houses or anything like that. <laughs> break-in magazine. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, <clears throat> thanks to Jonathan for sending those along, and thanks for the, uh, the the New Zealand amateur radio community for putting together such a magnificent publication. Uh, thanks also the guys. Several guys inquired about my uh, whether I still hold uh, the, the call signs CU2JL and Mike Zero Homebrew Radio. Uh, CU2JL. It's confirmed that I don't hold the call anymore. Well, that's what happens. You move along. And uh, M0HBR, there was a chance that I could hold it because the uh, the UK went to a lifetime ham radio license. But apparently, to maintain it, you have to send in validation every five years ago, validating that you're still living there or something, which, of course, I'm not. So I haven't been validating it. So M0HBR may be up for grabs also. But uh, anyway, I enjoyed holding both those calls. And thanks to the guys who, who checked that out. Finally, we got an email from uh, Dave, W8NF. And he wrote in in response to my questions about Parks Electronics. I was talking about this uh, little two-meter converter that I had. And uh, uh, Dave uh, did some research and, and found that it, it that found some information about Parks and Parks Electronics, but also some broader information about, uh, about Beaverton, Oregon, and the Tektronics community and all the great ham radio activity that takes place in and around Beaverton, and he talks about there's a new uh, Tektronics Museum being put together. So I'll try to get uh, Dave's email up on the blog. Um, guys, that brings us um, 
to the end of Solder Smoke 134. I hope you've, you've enjoyed it. I hope everybody who's heading to Dayton will have a good, safe trip and a, and a, and a good experience there. Uh, regards to everybody at, uh, at four days in May. Uh, special, special, uh, I always, always think of the, uh, the guys who travel really long distances to go to the Hamvention. Uh, I know George Dobbs. The guys from the GQRP club will be there. Have a great trip. I think you guys always have a good good time. And remember, what happens in Dayton stays in Dayton. <laughs> and uh, anyway, uh, good luck to everybody who's who's uh, who's making the trip. And uh, hope to well we'll we'll have some reports from Dayton in the uh, in the next next podcast. I think our our correspondent always comes through with the. Uh, with good information from the Hamvention and FDIM. The Solder Smoke podcast is produced once or twice a month using roadkill computers in an electronics workshop somewhere in the wilds of Northern Virginia. The podcast is available via iTunes and directly from our website, soldersmoke.com. Our blog, the Solder Smoke Daily News, is at soldersmoke.blogspot.com. Send email to soldersmoke, that's one word, at yahoo.com. Solder Smoke is listener-supported, and there are many ways you can help keep the podcast going. Please spread the word. Let your friends know about Solder Smoke, the podcast, and our blog. Put links to the podcast and the blog on your websites. Buy a copy of the critically acclaimed book, Solder Smoke, Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics, available from lulu.com. Begin all your visits to Amazon via the Amazon link on our blog page. In this way, Solder Smoke gets a commission from anything you buy on Amazon. Buy some of our attractive Solder Smoke t-shirts, coffee mugs, and bumper stickers at the Solder Smoke store at CafePress.com. If you have a small business, consider advertising on the podcast or on the blog. Our rates are reasonable and our staff is friendly. If none of this appeals to you but you still want to help, well... We have a donation button in the upper left-hand corner of the blog page. However you choose to help, we thank you for your support. Ciao, bravi ragazzi.